Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Uh, We're in a series working through the book of Romans, and so I just wanted to do a little bit of uh, summary of all that we've covered so far, um, just in brief, not fully. Um, so Romans chapters 1 through 5, Paul is basically laying out his case for justification by faith. That is that we are justified, we are declared righteous in God's sight, we are declared not guilty in the sight of a holy God, and that this is accomplished by putting our faith in the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so Paul lays that out there in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. And then when we get to chapter 6, Paul raises a question, in chapter 7 he raises another question that he anticipates his audience may have in response to all that he shared so far. So last week we took a look at the first of those in Romans chapter 6, and if I may just summarize the two questions that he raises, they're kind similar in verses 1 and 15 of Romans chapter 6, where he's basically saying, if God forgives us, then why not sin? I mean, if God's full of all this grace and God's full of all this mercy, then why not just open the floodgates and have all the fun we want to have? And so the Holy Spirit of God speaks to that in Romans chapter 6. Now this week, the question that he's going to be addressing, again, anticipating his audience wondering, is what is the purpose of the Old Testament law? Why did God give the Old Testament law then if God was just going to forgive all of our sins? What was the point of it? What what, What was it trying to accomplish in and through our lives? And so Paul's going to speak to that to us today. Our text comes from Romans chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 7 through 13. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask for you to stand and read with us, or you can follow along on the screen either way. That's just fine. I'm reading from the ESV version. Again, I want to remind us every so often, it's a good thing to hear, that this is where truth comes from, that it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what you read on Facebook or what somebody said online or what somebody has to say on the radio, that what matters at the end of the day is what God thinks. And we don't have to wonder what God thinks, right? Because he he wrote it down. Isn't that neat how he did that? So we, have, we were able to know what God thinks. So uh, we're reading, we stand to, to both to respect God's word, but also to be reminded that this is where truth comes from. All right, Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 7. Here we go. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that produced life proved to be death to me. Verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Last verse, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You may be seated. I know what you're wondering. Same thing as you were wondering last week, what in the world is he talking about? I mean, this sounds like such, almost like you're reading lawyer speech here, right? I mean, this is such a complex argument that Paul makes here. And so, my, again, my hope, as with last week, is that by the time we get through the end of this, you're going to say, oh, okay, I see what Paul's saying here. And you can point by point explain that to somebody else. Again, that's my hope. We'll see how we do. All right, so I'm going to actually start. I don't think I have this on the slides, but I'm going to start at verse 11, which says this. We're going to go back to verses 7 through 12 here in just a little bit. But Paul concludes verses 7 through 12 by making this statement. He says, so the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
So Paul is saying here, if, has anybody ever wondered if the Old Testament law was not good, if the Old Testament law was bad, if the, unho- if the Old Testament law was worthless? Paul says, no, that's not the case. The Old Testament law is holy, it is righteous, it is good. And then he raises a question in verse 13, which kind of spills out of this idea that the law is good. And he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to me. So basically what Paul is saying here is this idea that he was bumping along in his life and he thought everything was hunky-dory between he and God. Paul is saying that the Old Testament law uh, then revealed the fact that everything was not right in Paul's life. Um, It's kind of basically like if you think about somebody and you're driving down the road and you're riding along and you're doing 55 miles an hour and all of a sudden you see a speed limit sign post and it says 45. And you think to yourself, well, hold on here. I thought the 55 was the speed limit. I thought that I was doing just fine, right? But all of a sudden you realize that you're speeding. And that's kind of the way the law works. That's what Paul's saying, is that I was bumping along in my life. I thought everything was good. I thought me and God were doing just fine. But then all of a sudden I see this sign stuck in the road. And it, re- it shows to me, it reveals to me that I'm actually speeding, that I'm actually not living up to God's standards for my life. And so that's what Paul's saying there. Um, God declares in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4 that the soul that sins shall die. It's not that the speed limit sign made me, um, or made me sin, right? I, I made me sin. I'm the one who did the action. Um, but the sign was there to reveal to me all along that I had been speeding. Um, God told Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of the tree, that you will, you will surely die. Again, the law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. There's nothing wrong with that speed limit sign. That speed limit sign is not uh, unrighteous. That speed limit sign is there to reveal to us that our actions are not in step with what the law requires. Um, Romans chapter 7 and verse 13 says it was sin producing death. That's what sin produces. The law didn't produce it. Uh, The law was merely responding to or revealing that sin was taking place. Think of it like this. Nathan was the great prophet of Israel, right? And he goes to David to talk to David about his indiscretions. And so was David evil? I'm sorry, was Nathan evil because Nathan showed up to hold up the sign? No. No. Nathan wasn't evil. There was nothing inherently unrighteous about Nathan for doing that. He was just holding up the sign. He was just showing, revealing to David, hey, look, your actions are out of step with God's expectations for your life. Again, the purpose of the law is to show us that we are sick and we need a physician, that we're speeding and we need to slow down, that we are weak and that we need a helper, that we are guilty and we need a Savior. And what Paul discovered about the law and Um, And that's what he discovered about the law. In fact, he's going to give us a little personal testimony. So let's kind of backtrack to what we read earlier, starting at verse 7. And he gives a little personal testimony of how all of this came to his attention, how he discovered that he was speeding as he was heading down the road of life. So start at verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin was. If nobody had ever put the sign on the side of the road, God had not ever put his instruction manual there and told me what sin was, he said, I would have just been going down the road and everything would have been fine. I would have never even known. Verse 80 says, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So what he's saying there is basically when I drove by that sign on the side of the road, it made me want to speed up. It made me want to speed all the more. I was like, I'm going to do 65 through your 45 mile an hour zone. Paul's like, I got a lead foot now. I'm ready to tear down the road. And Paul says, that's kind of what, when, when somebody finally held up God's law to me and I saw it, it almost drew out of me a desire to want to break God's law. And that's kind of how the what he's talking about there. So Paul says there was basically this time in his life when he was bumping along through life, he was driving down the road of life, and everything he thought was fine between he and God, and then all of a sudden he saw that speed limit sign, right, on the side of the road, and he realized, 
I've been, I've been wrong all along. He says in verse 9, he says, During that time when I thought everything was fine, before I saw the signs, before I realized what God's commandments were, he says, I was alive. In other words, in my own estimation, in my own evaluation of my life, I thought God and I were good. I thought there was no issue, no problem, right, between the two of us. And yet it was when he saw the sign, when he read God's word, when he discovered what God's expectations were, then all of this kind of came into view, that he was sinning. Um, he gives us a specific example of, I, I don't know if this was the thing that made Paul realize he was a sinner, but he says certainly this was one of the things. Um, he says there in verse, uh, verse, I think it was verse 8, where he begins to talk about this concept of covetousness. Um, you see the, thou shalt not covet, one of the Ten Commandments, right? Commandment number 10. Um, the Pharisees in Paul's day, they had all these rules. They had 613, right? I'm, I'm looking for our Hebrew expert here. 613 rules uh, that they had established or observances that every person, every Jewish person would need to honor in order to fulfill God's expectations, right? So the 613, I'll keep those rules. They got, can you imagine 613 signs on the side of the road, right? And you're trying to keep all of those. And so that's basically what Paul is saying. In life, there were 613 rules, and God said, if you keep these perfectly, then you're, you're, we're good, right? And so Paul says, but when I came along, he's talking there in verse 8, he says, one of the rules that I saw that revealed to me that I wasn't doing everything right was this concept of covetousness. Now, all the other commandments deal with outward actions. Many of the 613 deal with outward actions. And Paul's like, you know, I can, I can know that I didn't steal, I can know that I didn't murder somebody. He said, but when commandment number 10 was revealed to me, this concept of you shall not covet, I realized that that's an inside commandment. That's a commandment that doesn't, has, doesn't have any outward action to it. It's, it's, it's something going on in my head. It's something that's going on in my heart. And he realized that I can't beat that. I can't control that. I can't stop that. It's something that's on the inside of me. And he realized in that moment that, look, I'm violating God's laws. I'm violating his rules. And Paul realized, even though I keep 612, God, that I couldn't keep all of them. And he recognized that he was a sinner. Um, and so that's what he's talking about there. And I guess that was in verse 7. Um, and then verse 8, again, he says, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So he just wanted to, it's like it almost just gave rise to a desire to want to break those rules. You say, well, why was it, again, that commandment that woke Paul up? Again, it was because he could outwardly keep everything else, but that one commandment was an inside job that he just couldn't, couldn't overcome. The problem wasn't, again, the law. The problem was what was inside of Paul's heart. And the Pharisees had made all these outward rules and regulations so that they could avoid sin, but when commandment number 10 came along, it dealt exclusively with the, outs, with the inside, um, and they could not avoid that one. Paul basically said when he read commandment number 10, he realized that he had jealousy. He realized that he had resentment, that he had inside of him, had fleshly competition, and he could not get rid of that. He could not overcome it. On the inside, he realized he was stained by sin, and he needed rescuing. Paul then writes verse 10, he says, the very commandment that promised life, he's talking about eternal life there, the very commandment that promised eternal life to me, that I thought if I kept all 613, I kept them perfectly, then me and God are good, me and God are on, on par, and I'm going to end up in heaven, he said, and then I realized I couldn't keep them all perfectly. Paul says over in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21, for if a law had been given that could give eternal life, 
then righteousness would indeed be by the law, that we would gain our right standing with God, that we'd be declared not guilty in God's eyes by keeping all 613 rules. He says, but that's not the purpose of the law. Paul goes on to say that God didn't give the law to bring eternal life to anybody. In fact, it's just the opposite. By the fact that there's a speed limit sign on the side of the road of life, we recognize that we are indeed speeding, that we are indeed out of step with God's expectations for our life. And so when God gave the law, he didn't give it so that we would, he would steer us. He didn't give it so that it would steer us to heaven. Rather, he gave it to reveal to us our need for a Savior. Keeping the law, being a good person, Doing righteous acts is not the method to get to heaven. Remember, Paul's been talking in these first five chapters about justification by faith. You're declared not guilty in God's sight by putting your faith and your trust for eternity in the work that Jesus accomplished in the cross, plus nothing else. It says right there in verse 13 that the purpose of the law was so that sin might be shown to be sin that we would see our sinful state and our sinful actions, that we would no longer walk around in self-justification mode, excusing ourselves, reassuring ourselves, oh, it's all okay, be in God or good. Nope, there's that sign. Every time I drive by it, it reminds me that I'm out of step with God's expectations. And so, again, that was the purpose of the law. We have a few people in here that are builders and some of you that like doing some projects. Some of you have hung some, uh, some pictures for your spouse. I'm on the wall, and so I'm sure all of us are familiar with or have at one time or another engaged with a level, right? We know what a level is, okay? So um, the way a level works, it's got a, a, a straight line, right? And it's a little thing, in a little plastic thing inside there. It's filled with fluid, and there's a bubble inside. And then there's two little lines on that, on that plastic glass, and then the bubble, when it gets in between the lines, you know that the level, whatever it is that you're the level setting on, that it is straight, right? That it's, it's level. And I've had times when I've hung stuff for Claire. You know, she's had different things around the house that she's wanted me to hang. And I've, I've stood there, and I'm like, I'm going to eyeball this thing, right? And it looks great to me. I, and then I, brought, I invite her in. She's like, I don't think so. No, it's just the sunlight coming through the window. That's all it is. But then I put the level on there, and the level doesn't lie. That thing's hanging to the, to the left, or it's, it's a little bit to the right. Or something's not right about it. It's just, it's out of square. It's not level. And so I have to bump it up a little bit on one side, or bump it up a little bit on the other side, and try to get that thing level. My point is that some things may look correct and right to the naked eye, but when you lay an unbiased standard against it, right, when you take God's level, and you set it on our lives, and we realize, you know what, things are not as correct as I thought maybe they were. Again, that's why God gave the law. He didn't give the law to save anybody. We are justified by faith, by the work that Jesus accomplished in the cross. But God gave the law to remind us as something to compare our lives to so that we would realize, recognize, that we are indeed out of step with God's expectations for us. Paul repeats this perspective over in 1 Timothy chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He begins, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then he says, verse 9, here's how you use it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, that is for people who have been made just. The law was given, not given for us, rather, it was given for the lawless, for the disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinners. And he goes on to list a whole bunch of stuff there in verses 9 and 10. So basically what he's saying is the law was given for people who are not believers, rather the law was given for people who are unbelievers, people who don't know Jesus as their Savior. You know, part of you coming to faith in Christ is that the, the start of that was you admitting that you have a sin problem and that you can't fix it. And that you're looking to Jesus to fix the problem. 
That's the starting point of becoming a believer, of becoming a Christian. And so Paul is saying, look, the law wasn't given for people who are believers. The law was given for people who are outside of the faith, people who are not believers. It's to reveal to them, right, that things aren't on the level in their life. That's why God gave it. To once and all, rob humanity of false hope, of false security, of false notions of safety, and to bring the fear and judgment of God upon their souls. You say, well, why in the world would God want to make somebody know that they're sinful? It doesn't sound like a very nice thing of God to do, to point out their faults and all that. It doesn't sound like a really compassionate thing of God to do. Well, again, it's the precursor to somebody coming to faith in Jesus, recognizing that they have a sin problem. That's the precursor to then putting our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, because it's only then that we, can, that we can be saved. You see, folks, as long as a sinner has the kind of false security that Paul had, thinking everything was fine, everything was hunky-dory, then he wouldn't be interested in Jesus Christ because, him, because um, he didn't think he had a need for Jesus. It's only when we see ourselves as sinners, it's only when we see clearly just how far short we really fall that we then recognize our need for a Savior. The purpose of the law is to convince sinners that they are sinners and to convince them of their need for Jesus Christ. Once the law has done that, it has accomplished its major purpose. Once the law has taken a sinner by the hand and put that hand in the outstretched hand of Jesus and married them together, the law has completed its purpose. All right, let's sum up. Is the law sin? Paul says, by no means. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. Is there anything wrong with the law? Again, no, the law has a purpose that God intended for it. And what was that purpose that God used for the law? Was it to kill me? Was it to take me out? Was it to condemn me? No, the purpose of the law was to use as a level, as a sign on the side of the road of our lives to, re- to show us, to reveal to us that we are out of step with God's expectations, that we are indeed sinners. That's the purpose of the law. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, um, and that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. It's a question that we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Um, let's talk about that. You know, uh, one of the—we have to be careful as believers not to water down sin, not to water down sin. I find that so many of us as Christians want to be nice people, Right? We want to be nice to the people in our offices. Uh, we want to accept of other people. We want to be tolerant toward other people and their faith and or, you know, their backgrounds. And we want to express and show that um, you know, we can live together in, in unity as, as a people and community. And we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so, you know, a lot of times in our efforts to be nice, we end up excusing their sin. We, we almost pretend like God loves you and it's all going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. It's not. Remember, the precursor to coming to faith in Jesus is admitting that we have a sin problem. God never said that you have to have, admit that you have a sin problem, get all those sin problems fixed up and made right, and then you come into church and you find Jesus. That's not the way this works. It's admitting that you have a sin problem, come to Jesus for forgiveness, and then Jesus helps work with you through those sin problems and helps you uh, live a better life right? But we have to be willing to open our mouths at the front end of all that and share with people 
God's expectations and standards. How else will they come to repentance but that someone shares with them? I mean, we really want people to come to Christ, right? Right? We really want people to go to heaven, right? Well, friends, again, the precursor to that is that they see themselves as sinful in God's eyes. Not sinful in my eyes and according to my standards and how I feel. Again, the I think, I believe, it doesn't matter. It's what does God have to say? What does God think? Because at the end of the day, that's who you're going to stand before. And friends, we can do that kindly. We can do that compassionately. But we have to do that. Um, I don't know if any of y'all go up into Watkinsville in the mornings. Um, I do. I sit up in McDonald's. I, I, especially in the, this time of year, I like a hot cup of coffee in the morning. And so if you're traveling through McDonald's in the drive-thru, just honk your horn two or three times and I'll wave at you through the window. Okay. So I, I go in there and I got to know all the folks that work in there. I'm a couple of mornings a week at least. And, um, I, and so I am sitting there and I'm pecking away at my sermons and I've got my Bible out. And so uh, all the folks know that I'm a pastor and uh, one of the guys it comes around and cleans up the tables and stuff. And so we've had many opportunities to have conversations. So just this past week, I was working on this sermon and he came up to me and he said, hey, look, I got a question for you. Okay, fire away. And a theology question of the day. And so I said, fire away. And so he says, um, you know, I've got this person that I work with and they're doing stuff. Now, this guy goes to church. He says, they're doing stuff and they're living in a certain way that's out of step with, with what God's word says. He says, I don't know how to respond to him. And I said, well, just tell him what God's word says. And he's like, it's, not, it's a little more complicated than that, right? What's he saying? He's saying, I want to be nice. I want to be compassionate. I, I, I don't want to walk rain on their parade. Um, and so what he's saying is he would like to just maybe say you're a nice person and God loves you and it's all going to be fine. But he's doing them a grand disservice. And so we talked a little bit about, well, how do you then share compassionately? How do you share in a loving way, but still share? And so he kind of got a little uncomfortable with the thought of that, realizing that that's what he needed to do, that he needed to open his mouth and say, hey, look, uh, you're asking me what I think. I'm going to tell you what God thinks and let you do with it what you want. And, and of course, the door may slam shut in his face, and that's okay. Fruit's not ripe yet, right? Fruit's not, fruit's not ripe yet. I think I said that correctly. And so they're just not ready yet, but, you know, he put some fertilizer around it. You know, until a person is willing to come to Christ and repent of their sins, there is no opportunity for them to be saved. It's the precursor. It's required for salvation. We have to recognize and see ourselves as sinful. doesn't mean that we have it all together at that moment. But we, we come, that's, that's just the point, is we come to God saying, I don't have it all together. My life is a mess. I am a sinner. Just like the tax collector that Jesus talked about. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. Jesus is telling the story here. He says, a man who stood far off in the place of worship. He's a tax collector. He's at church. And you know, the tax collectors in Jesus' day were, <clears throat> they were not, uh, not well thought of. Uh, they were enemies of Israel. They were working for the Roman occupational government. And so he's feeling the weight of his sin. He's feeling the weight of his betrayal of his own people. He's feeling the weight of the way he's been living his life. And it says that this guy would not even lift his eyes toward heaven. He stood there and beat his breast. And he prayed out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And then Jesus says, also standing there in the temple was this uh, Pharisee. He says, verse 11, the Pharisee began to pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. Don't do that, okay? This guy's terrible. Um, He's literally casting guilt and shame and pointing the finger at everybody else. And he lists off a bunch of people. It even says in his prayer, I'm glad I'm not like that. Even that tax collector over there in the corner pointing this fella out. And Jesus says, of the two who went home justified, who went home forgiven, who went home righteous in God's sight, it wasn't the Pharisee. It was a tax collector who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector was convicted of his sinfulness before a holy God. And friends, until people get to that place, until people acknowledge their sinful state, they are not ready to be saved. You know the story of the prodigal son. I thank God for that dad. Uh, one of the things in the story that jumped out at me this week as I was thinking about this, the father allowed his son to make those awful decisions and throw his life away um, and squander his inheritance and, and make all the decisions that he made. Um, God bless that dad. You know, it would have been very easy for that father I know this is just a story, but it would have been very easy for that father to go and rescue his son and to pull him out of that bad decision that he had made. Let him make the decision a little bit, and then, oh, look, you're, you're really going to end up, something really bad's going to happen, so I need to rescue you out of that. But that father in the story knew that sin needed, or that conviction of sin needed to germinate in the heart of his son. And then until conviction of sin germinated in the heart of his son, he wasn't ready to repent. He wasn't ready to come back home. He had to see himself as sinful and as wretched in God's sight and in need of saving. The father had sense enough to let that happen. You know, you and I need to understand that it is important for us to take the word of God and to stand by it even though it may sound harsh to people in this day and age. And the reason that it sounds so harsh is because the people of this day and age, more and more, not unlike anybody else in the rest of history, but more and more so in our country, are becoming more and more out of line with God's standards. They're bubble far and further and further outside of the line. Um, Paul told Timothy... I don't think I have a slide for you on this one, but Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Remember, Timothy is ministering amongst the Greek people, and they were a people who were given to licentiousness. They were Las Vegas everywhere, right? And so he says to Timothy, hey, look, Timothy, in that culture, in that community, in that environment, in that where everybody, everything goes and everybody seems to be fine with it, he said to him, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, preach the word. Tell them the truth. He said, correct, rebuke, and train them in righteousness. Friends, if you want to do your friends a favor, tell them kindly. Please tell them kindly, not like the Pharisee. Tell them lovingly. Tell them with compassion and patience, but we must tell them what God thinks. Let's bow our heads together. Friends,
Most gracious God, we just thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to gather around your word, to hear your truth spoken, for the challenge that it represents to us. God, it is not an easy thing, increasingly difficult in the day and age in which we live, to stand for your truth. It makes an easy target out of us. Lord, but we must, like Timothy, preach the word. We must correct. We must rebuke. We must train in righteousness. Lord, we just ask that when you give us opportunities to speak your truth to a world that is just zipping by the signs, that, Lord, we be faithful to do that. It may not make us somebody's best friend, but, Lord, when we're standing at heaven's gates, they will thank us for having opened our mouth and sharing your truth with them. God, as we gather around this table, we're reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body. We are thankful so much to you, Lord Jesus, for what you accomplished on our behalf, for your great love. Minister to our hearts. Lord, if there's something in our life that you want to point out this morning that's out of step with your expectations, with your standards, with your, uh, your law, Lord, we just ask that you would help us, give us the strength to navigate that, overcome it, find victory. We give you this few quiet moments, and we pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. The communion elements are there in the seat in front of you. We ask that you would um, share in those, and then we'll close with a time of worship.